episode 244 of the DFS Dose podcast, your fix of daily fantasy sports information, strategy, and analysis. I'm your host, Ben Hover, joined as I always am by Joey Carrion. And yes, Joey, I did say DFS Dose because we are almost here in DFS season. Feels good to be getting back to our roots, back how this whole thing began. And, and that's sort of what the subject of this show will be. It'll be for a beginner's guide to DFS, an intro to DFS, if you will, just sort of going over some basic concepts for people who are maybe looking to get into DFS for the first time. Yeah, obviously, a majority of our listeners are probably somewhat experienced in the DFS streets. But if you are listening to this and you need a little bit of a refresher, that's what this podcast is for. We're going to go over your goals as a DFS player, contest selection, bankroll management, etc., etc. So this will be a nice, informative podcast to get you caught up to date on the 2022 DFS landscape and how you should be playing in terms of what you want to achieve for the 2022 season when it comes to DFS. Absolutely. And I think that this is an important show. We did a version of this all the way back in 2020, episode 85 of the podcast. I went back and listened to about two thirds of the show and I thought it was pretty interesting. I think that some of the things that we were talking about have become sort of outdated. So I think an updated version of this show that sort of properly encapsulates where DFS is currently as a landscape is going Mm -hmm. to be very important. And In my opinion, the single most important thing when it comes to playing DFS at the start of the season is having hard established goals as what you want to achieve as a DFS player. Are you trying to get rich, trying to bank a massive tournament? Are you trying to make a steady profit throughout the course of the year? And depending on what your personal goals are, the types of lineups you build, the contests you enter are going to be wildly different. So, you know, maybe you can just go in willy nilly firing at things, but I think just by giving yourself a solid path that you know that you want to follow, you're starting off on the right foot. Absolutely. And I think your goals just ultimately help you understand how you should be playing DFS, right? And that goes into contest selection. Like you mentioned, if you're playing DFS to try and bank a million dollars or bank a large field tournament, you're going to be playing in large field GPPs where the strategy is a little bit different than let's say a 500 man field for the $200 spy, you know, that you're going to be playing every week. Mm -hmm. So I think understanding your goals and what you want to do definitely influences how you should be playing DFS. And I think we said it on that episode as well. A majority of people should be playing for fun. A majority of people should be playing to try and get that large score, that life-changing money for sure. It's It's a tough grind when you know, you're just trying to find the smallest edges possible in terms of roster construction and optimal lineup construction and grinding head-to-heads and cash games and just trying to grind out an 8% ROI. (laughs) So a majority of people just should ultimately be playing for fun and letting that dictate how they play for the season. Without a doubt. And And I mean, just from like a consumer aspect it's so much more fun to be sweating out a massive tournament you know seeing yourself climb up the the standings in a large field versus you know having a one dollar head-to-head to win a dollar eighty <laughs> against somebody who has like six of the same players as you out of nine yeah. you know it's just it's just a more enjoyable experience and frankly it's i don't know i, I just think it's the thing that 
a majority of people should be doing. Let's talk about contest selection. So once you've established your goals, you can really figure out which of the two paths you want to go down. There are really two overarching categories of DFS games. There are cash games and there are tournaments. Do you want to explain the difference for somebody who may not know? Cash games are contests that you roughly have a 50% chance of winning. So double ups, head to heads, 50-50s are considered cash games on DraftKings. And in those games, you are prioritizing floor over ceiling in your lineup. You're prioritizing opportunity. You're not worrying about ownership or leverage. You are just focusing on playing the most optimal plays possible for that week. Tournaments, just the complete opposite. You know, only the top 20 or 15 percent of players in the pool for a specific tournament get paid out most of the money that is guaranteed in the prize pool is paid out to first sometimes you could see 50 percent of the total prize pool is paid out to first and you're really just looking to finish top five in any tournament that you play so your strategy definitely should be different for tournaments where you're prioritizing ceiling you're prioritizing getting unique you're prioritizing getting leverage on your opponents. So I would say those are the main differences between cash and tournaments on DFS sites. Right. And and the thing about like a cash game, they can still be large field. Like for example, there's a double up on DraftKings, $2 to enter. There's 17,000 people playing, but first through 7,500 are all making the same amount of money. So you don't need to be taking risks to try and get to the top because you're making the same whether you finish first or whether you fish, uh, finish 7,000th. You're just doubling your money. You're making $4. But you can look at a $3 tournament, same sort of price point, same sort of size of field where first place is making 4,000 and a hundredth is making 15. You know, they're going to be top heavy. So you're going to be constructing different types of lineups to try and get to the top of that field because that's where all of the money is and it just goes sort of back into establishing your goals if you're trying to grind out a steady profit on a week-to-week basis playing cash games head-to-heads double ups just makes more sense than you know chasing large prize pools and tournaments one of the most underrated aspects i think of contest selection is searching for rake free contests Joey and Rake, if you are unaware, is the percentage of the prize pool that the site hosting the contest is taking. So, for example, if DraftKings is taking a 9% rake of a $100,000 tournament, $9,000 of the entry fees are going straight to DraftKings. However, they do promotional contests or contests in conjunction with their partners that are rake-free. So 100% of the entries that the players playing in the contest are paying goes back into the prize pool. And right off the bat, you're not paying anything to DraftKings to enter this contest, which in the end is a strong bankroll management strategy. And it's just plus EV for what you expect to get back in an ROI sense. Yeah, I mean, the easiest way to... You know, increase your ROI if that's your goal over the course of the year is to seek out those contests. And there's plenty of them that get ran every single week. I can name three right off the top, and that's uh, Smizzles, 
uh, Listener League, Pat Mayo's Listener League, and then ETR has their own Listener League. So that's three rake-free contests right there from partners with DraftKings. And then I feel like there's a couple more. And then I think DraftKings also runs some themselves here and there. So there are definitely great contests to enter. And the easiest way, in my opinion, to know the rake is to just have the Roto-Grinders extension on your PC. If you download the extension, add it to your Chrome browser, it'll automatically tell you the rake right next to the contest and any potential overlay. So you just want to be looking for the least raked contest possible if you want to increase your ROI expectation over the course of the year. Yes. Also, something important with contest selection is understanding field size and how that should impact how you are constructing your lineups. I think that this is relatively self-explanatory, but for example, the $5 millionaire maker on DraftKings in week one has over a million people playing. So it makes sense that the best lineup out of a million people is going to have a higher score than, you know, say the contest that has 500 people. It just makes, mm-hmm. you know, logical sense. And so knowing that going into something, it should change the way that you construct a lineup. Are you shooting to beat a million people or are you only shooting to beat 500 people? It allows you to know where you have to get different and how different you have to get. This is definitely one of the things that I have stressed getting better at over the past couple of years. And I think that it's something that everybody should be paying attention to because you could be looking at two $3 contests where they're both tournaments and maybe on the surface you think, okay, these are similar contests. I should play them the same way, but a contest with 4,000 people and 40,000 people are vastly different. Yeah, absolutely. I I think you should definitely be paying attention to field size and field size ultimately dictates how you should be building your lineup. The higher the field size, the more you want to get away from the chalk plays from the quote unquote optimal lineup just because you want to give yourself the best chance possible to hit the one percentile outcome. Obviously, you don't have to fade every single best play, but in a large field like that, it's more beneficial than not. So yeah, definitely understanding contest size and whether or not it's single entry or three max or multi-entry also plays a factor in how you should be selecting contests. I think the majority of our listeners should be focusing on three max and single entry tournaments. It gives you a more even playing field. Everybody has the same amount of entries to use whereas you're not competing with you know people who might be 150ing the millimaker maker or some of the other multi-entry tournaments so i would also say just make, make sure you're just uh, playing the single entries and in, in the three max tournaments yep they're definitely the best contests that are available if you're sort of unfamiliar with DraftKings as a platform you can easily see this everything is clearly labeled on the site if you look on their contest lobby page you can see single entry tournaments tournaments are going to be marked single entry and if you look at the number of entries there will be an m next to it which signifies multi-entry which means that you can submit multiple lineups to this contest if you you know hold your cursor over the m it'll tell you exactly how many tournaments so for example 150 is the highest it can go that's just a legal thing in terms of dfs 150 lineups is the most that you can submit to any given tournament but like joey said there are tournaments that are single entry there are three max entries five max and then you'll get the random 
you know, 60 max or, or whatever, but those are just different. The standard things you're going to be looking for are 1, 3, 5, and 150. And I think that there's sort of a sliding scale depending on what type of bankroll you're trying to play. You know, the, the larger your bankroll, the more likely you're probably going to be trying to get in entries into the big 150s versus a smaller targeted bankroll going for the single entry in three max tournaments, which I think is the way that the vast, vast majority of people should be playing. Absolutely. And I think bankroll management is definitely key, you know, only playing what you can afford to lose on a weekly basis. And I think a majority of DFS players are probably playing within a couple hundred dollars of spending money every single week on DFS. So if you're only playing a hundred dollars a week, let's say, I, I think that should definitely influence your contest selection. I think you are more on the casual side than you know, the, the grinder side when it comes to DFS, if you're only playing $100 or $50 a week, and that should definitely determine what kind of contest you're playing in. At that point, in, in my opinion, I would be focusing just on tournaments, just trying to hit big if I'm willing to just uh, spend that $100 a week and understand that, you know, you could potentially lose all 17 weeks, but I, I think I would be fine just rolling strictly tournaments if I was, you know, more so a casual player, unless you do like the grind of finding the most optimal lineup for cash games. And I, I think that in terms of your bankroll, you should definitely be splitting a percentage of your allocation to cash. The standard used to be 80-20. I don't know if you feel that's the same or if you feel like you're personally going away from that. How, how do you feel about this 80-20 rule where 80% of your, uh, your game should be cash games? I think that it may be a bit outdated but again that just goes into what your goals as a dfs player are you know if you're comfortable playing 50 to 100 dollars a week and and losing it every single week without making any of it back then yeah i mean i'd be firing 100 percent into tournaments and not worrying about you know grinding back you know 15 percent of my money through cash games or, or whatever it may be i think if you're playing a larger bankroll on a weekly basis it's definitely smart to sort of supplement your potential losses in tournaments with you know the safer cash game floor personally speaking my goal this year is going to be focusing on higher buy-in small field tournaments not trying to bank a million dollars per se but taking shots at things like 10k first place finishes and and 50k first place finishes in smaller fields so for me personally my plan this year is to probably play between 60 70 percent tournaments 30 40 in cash games but again that is very much based on risk tolerance how much are you willing to lose what size your bankroll is and what your goals are i also think that a good way to look at your bankroll on a week-to-week -week basis is sort of thinking about it in terms of how much money am i going to play this season you know whatever that number may be say i'm going to play a thousand dollars i'm playing 10 percent of that per week and then it's less about playing the same amount per money but playing the same percent of your bankroll so if you you know hit bigger you can scale up but still be taking the same amount of risk tolerance in 10 mm -hmm. of your role on a week-to-week -week basis or if you lose you're scaling down a little bit but you're still playing 10 and just keeping yourself sort of in a good spot in in that way i mean how do you feel about it what sort of splits do you see yourself playing this year i think i i think i'll probably be somewhere around 50 50 yeah for sure just because i, I still like playing cash 
Uh, I, I play a lot of head-to-heads weekly just because I feel like that's where my biggest edge is, is in head-to-heads and in double-ups. Um, I've had, you know, continued success over the last two or so years in cash games. So definitely more beneficial for me as a player to continue to play cash games, but definitely going to be taking more shots in tournaments for sure. Yeah, I think bankroll management is uh, the most underrated aspect of being a good DFS player because it's easy, especially in football, where there's a lot of variance involved to not win for weeks on end. And both of us have experienced this over the last few years and so have other DFS players and you know players better than us professionals people who do this for a living you could go on a season-long drought of not winning and if you blow your whole bankroll early like you're, you're just done you're, you're just yeah. busto so I think it's important to understand bankroll management and only play what you're comfortable losing each and every single week make sure it doesn't affect your life and just just ultimately just have fun with it. Yeah, no, for sure. It's it's funny having this conversation uh, as our new mature selves two years later. On the last podcast, we're just like, fuck it. We're going hard. Go go broke, but don't follow our advice. <laughs> <laughs> how, how times have changed. I also want to say that this is kind of like a very nuanced conversation because if you understand like the ins and outs of a full DFS season grind, there can be exceptions. And this is also the kind of thing I would advise people like if you guys want to join our discord and like talk more in depth about this, we've been doing this for years now and we'd be happy to give you guys like more specific pointers. These are all sort of like general umbrella rules. Like for example, you know, I just got done saying I think that playing 10% is really smart and a good way to go on a week to week basis. But also, it's important to know that there are like pockets to an NFL season where at the beginning, the amount of information that we have is largely based on speculation. So you can capitalize on that uncertainty earlier in the year, if you're going to be a heavier tournament player, the best weeks to play tournaments are early in the year when you, when everybody has the same lack of information. And I Mm -hmm. think that, you know, conversely cash games get easier as the year goes on because we have, you know, such a better understanding of team usage and philosophies and, you know, the pace of play and how teams are going to interact with each other, et cetera, et cetera. So it makes it easier to build optimal lineups with more information that just makes logical sense. So I could definitely see myself playing a larger portion of my bankroll since my personal focus is tournaments early in the year and then maybe scaling back a little bit in the mid part of the year, just depending on how things go at the beginning. But again, that's very nuanced and specific to my goals, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that that's a good point. Uh, I think cash games do get easier as the year goes on and tournaments get harder. I could see that, you know, in my own play, like two out of the last three years, like I'll lose like weeks one and two in cash. Mm-hmm. I won last year week one, but you know, I, w- I was losing week one in cash years prior. And then I start going on win streaks during the middle portion of the season when, like you said, uh, more information is readily available and we have a better understanding of how the NFL season is going to play out. Yeah, I definitely agree that, you know, if there's a time to be taking shots in tournaments, it's definitely early in the season. I think that I'm going to be playing more tournaments early this year and, you know, then scaling towards a, a 50-50 split as the season goes on just for all of the reasons that you mentioned. All right, let's focus on specific lineups and and some strategies that may be different or unique to DFS correlation and stacking. You know, the old idiom that your lineup should tell a story. It's become sort of a meme amongst DFS Twitter, but it does make sense. And, And let's just talk about why correlation and stacking is important. 
correlation and stacking is important because it reduces the amount of things that you need to get right for your lineup to hit its one percentile outcome. So if you're playing Kirk Cousins in DraftKings and you're expecting him to have a tournament winning performance as a pure pocket passer, Kirk Cousins is most likely bringing two pass catchers along with him. So Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen. If Kirk Cousins is throwing 300 passing yards, getting the bonus and four touchdowns, and you need him to win the Millie Maker, there's a good chance Justin Jefferson and or Adam Thielen or whomever else is going to be needed with Kirk Cousins. So it just makes all of the sense in the world to correlate your lineups to stack your lineups for sure. Obviously, there's good correlation and bad correlation. The same example, Justin Jefferson would be good correlation with Kirk Cousins because they're both getting there the same way. Whereas Delvin Cook in that week might be considered bad correlation because the way Delvin Cook is most likely hitting his ceiling is through multiple rushing touchdowns and going over 100 rushing yards, which in theory should limit Kirk Cousins' ceiling and the other pass catcher ceiling if he's taking away touchdowns. Obviously, there are those random, you know, one-off games where the entire offense goes nuclear. They drop 45, 55 points, but more likely than not, if Delvin Cook is getting there, there's a good chance that Kirk and Justin Jefferson are getting there. So, yeah. That well said, and there's also correlation from games, you know, game stacks where you're not just stacking Kirk Cousins and Justin Jefferson. So Kirk and Justin Jefferson have a monster nuclear game in week one. They're putting up a ton of points. If this game is going well, it makes logical sense that somebody on the Packers is probably scoring, you know, at least some points. They've got to be matching something yeah. for Kirk Cousins, you know, the, the foot to still be on the gas for this team to still be going. So you correlate with somebody on the other side of the ball, i.e. Aaron Jones, A.J. Dillon, whoever that may be. But you want your lineup just to make sense. Another thing to think about correlation, and again, this is going to be like an, a super nuanced take, but you have to think about the way in which players are hitting their ceiling. So that was a great example. Kirk Cousins, if he's hitting ex- uh, his ceiling, he's probably throwing three four touchdowns and you want to capitalize on that through multiple pass catchers if Lamar Jackson is hitting his ceiling a large part of that is probably coming from rushing so it may not make the same amount of logical sense to double stack Lamar Jackson with Mm -hmm. Mark Andrews and Rashad Bateman they probably aren't both getting there if some part of the ceiling in this stack is coming from Lamar Jackson rushing yards rushing touchdowns etc so in that situation I think it makes more sense to single stack Lamar Jackson pick one of Mark Andrews or Rashad Bateman to pair with your rushing quarterback and and that's definitely something that we have to pay attention to more now in the NFL with the increased number of rushing quarterbacks and just thinking about the way that they hit their ceilings compared to the traditional pocket passers yeah absolutely I think a good rule of thumb if people want to mark this down is if they're a traditional pocket passer you should probably double stack if they can hit their ceiling through rushing you should probably only be single stacking I think you summed it up really well uh, with the Lamar Jackson example it makes a ton of sense in the world obviously there are those games where Lamar Jackson might not hit his ceiling because of rushing but hit his ceiling because he throws for 505 like he did that year against the Dolphins in week one right right 
Right. So obviously those games are in the range, but more likely than not, the probability of Lamar Jackson hitting a ceiling without rushing is slim to none, which definitely hurts the other pass catchers. So that, that's a good rule of thumb that I'm definitely going to follow this year is double stacking pocket passers and single stacking quarterbacks that I think could potentially get there uh, with rushing because obviously rushing takes away from everybody else's production and I just think it all ties into understanding how the players in your lineup can potentially hit their ceiling that's definitely something you should be taking into consideration with every lineup that you build with the wide receivers that you select the running backs that you select Like on DraftKings, for example, if your running back isn't catching passes, it's going to be harder for them to hit their ceiling, right? You're going to need them to score multiple rushing touchdowns and hit the 100-yard bonus, so you probably shouldn't be playing them with their quarterback. Some wide receivers also might not have some PPR upside. Those players could potentially be nice one-offs, and those players, personally, I wouldn't stack if they don't have that 10 target upside but they have touchdown upside they have big play upside so you know I think a prime example would be DK Metcalf I don't know if the target volume is going to be there obviously it's not worth stacking DK Metcalf but he's he'd probably be a nice one-off at low ownership just because you know the big play upside is there so I think just understanding how your players hit their ceiling and correlating your roster based on that and making your stacks based off your players and, and how they could potentially win you a bunch of money. Absolutely. And and let's talk about ownership. You just mentioned that there. And ownership is a really interesting thing that I think is unique more so to DFS than it is even to best ball. You know, we have a lot of listeners, I'm sure, who have been grinding best ball along with us. So they're thinking, you know, correlation and stacking, no shit. Obviously, we're doing this in best ball too. But ownership is less so a theory that comes into play in best ball because you know, at at least the first 15, 16, 17 rounds even are all players that are going to be on all rosters. Like most of these guys are getting drafted in every single draft. That is just not the case with DraftKings, especially now with so much good quality information out there in terms of DFS and the access to it being easier than it's ever been. People just know who the best plays are. So it consolidates ownership. You know, there's going to be a clear-cut play. So for example, you have a situation like in week one, Jonathan Taylor, elite stone-cold running back in a great matchup against the Texans. He's going to look good on projections. Everybody's going to know that, and it's going to drive his ownership up even more so than in years past. Then you may look at another running back who's comparable, but isn't getting touted, doesn't have the same level of projections, but a different ceiling. His ownership is going to be a lot less. He may be in 10 or 5 percent of lineups compared to Jonathan Taylor, who may be pushing 25-30. So 30% of lineups are living and dying with Jonathan Taylor. Say 10 to 5% are living or dying with Dalvin Cook. Jonathan Taylor may be a better pure play. If you're playing a cash game, you're just looking for the best floor ceiling combination. Jonathan Taylor's the play. But if you're looking Mm -hmm. to gain leverage on the field, you're going to want to go with Dalvin Cook because only 10 to 5% of people are moving up with Dalvin Cook having a better game. So I don't know. I think ownership is extremely important, especially in tournaments. Yeah, ownership projections are the single most important thing to winning a tournament or at least being a winning tournament player, in my opinion. And like you mentioned, everybody has access to good projections nowadays, You know, whether that be whatever site you use, they're, they're probably pretty solid. Uh, there's a lot of good information out there. And I think you definitely need to be using ownership. I think we're at the point where it's like, we 
we don't even need the ownership projections. Like we'll have them, but like mm-hmm. I could tell you who would be owned immediately as soon as the, as soon as the salaries are released. I could I could personally say, all right, this guy's chalk, this guy's chalk, this guy's chalk. Mm-hmm. And I think that just comes with experience. But I think a majority of people should probably be looking at ownership projections. And I think the the JT example is definitely a good example for week one. He should be one of the higher owned running backs. And it just goes into how you should be playing tournaments if you want to potentially win. Um, You want to find good leverage plays that project very similarly but you're getting a discount in terms of ownership and then it all comes back to you know what do you win when you win mm-hmm. right if you play you know your example was delvin cook who's 7900 you're getting a 1200 dollars discount from delvin cook to jt in week one you're probably getting a 20 25 percent ownership discount if i had to guess in tournaments for whatever reason if jt busts or if he doesn't have a ceiling game in week one whereas delvin cook does you're Five percent on Dalvin Cook is extremely more valuable than a thirty percent Jonathan Taylor. Even if Dalvin Cook matches, he doesn't even have to severely outproduce JT. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're getting so much leverage on the field, and your lineups are probably surpassing those lineups that use Jonathan Taylor. But running back is the position where you want to play it the safest, even in tournaments. That's the position where if there's some major chalk that you should be eating, it probably is the running back because they're probably the best play on the board for that specific week and that's definitely a conversation that we'll have when we talk about week one specifically so i necessarily wouldn't fade jt in that situation but the the whole example is yeah just getting leverage and and playing similarly projected plays at a lower ownership percentage Yes. And and leverage is just so, so important. And there are two distinct types of leverage, in my opinion. There's direct leverage and there's indirect leverage. A good example, I think, is let's look at Trey Lance, who I think we're both expecting to be one of, if not the highest owned quarterback in week one. Trey Lance is going to be massively owned. He's underpriced, has rushing upside, yada, yada, yada. Everybody's going to gravitate towards Trey Lance. If you wanted to get indirect leverage on Trey Lance, you could just play a different quarterback. You know, a quarterback who is not going to be as popular, low owned, you're already Mm -hmm. different from the field in the sense that you're not playing Trey Lance. So you've got leverage on all the Trey Lance lineups if your low owned quarterback has a better game or a better game points per dollar, however you want to look at it. Now, even better than that, I think, is direct leverage. For example, you could play the 49ers running back. Elijah Mitchell, as direct leverage, hits his ceiling in a way that directly hinders Trey Lance from hitting his ceiling. So Mitchell is getting two rushing touchdowns. Those are two touchdowns that Trey Lance isn't getting. So not only are you fading Trey Lance in this lineup and getting away from his bad week at high ownership, but you're also directly capitalizing on an outcome that correlates negatively with Trey Mm -hmm. Lance. So I think that, you know, that is sort of like the best situation and they can be far, uh, far and few between, I think. But when you do find them, you're just, you, you got to absolutely pounce on them. Like the one example that'll never leave my mind was the week where Devonte Adams was stone cold chalk. Like one of the chalkiest players I've ever seen. He was like 45% owned or something. Aaron Jones was 5%. And that week Devonte Adams bus 
Aaron Jones scores like four touchdowns, goes for 40 points. And mm-hmm. everybody who, you know, was on that leverage play, a small amount of people, because Jones was only 5%, absolutely smashed. And all of the Adams eaters of chalk were just, you know, left in the dust. Those are like the prime situations for DFS tournament players. And, and when they present themselves, you just have to be absolutely all in. Yeah, absolutely. There, There's a few weeks out of the year where one player just projects so much better than the field and you know in tournaments those are probably the weeks where you want to get the most different is when there is some condensed chalk around a guy or two and there's you know a guy that has Aaron Jones upside and can score four touchdowns in a game I I remember that exact situation I think there's also leverage in just fading players not even playing different players on the same team I think that there's some good leverage especially in cash in fading some players that may be chalk, but there is more risk involved than the majority of people realize. So I think the one example that sticks out to me over the last few years was, uh, I think it was the the Brian Hill chalk week. Oh God! When he, when he played for the Falcons. Mm-hmm. And I think both of us were on we're on the the team like we're bro. We're not playing fucking Brian Hill at fifty percent ownership in cash, right? Yeah, he, he ended up scoring like five points. Yeah, dusted everybody's cash teams. Like those are those are spots where I think you can also get leverages just by fading bad chalk plays, especially when the field is very certain that this player is a good play, and you might have some personal conviction that they're not. And we've talked about this over the last few years that we kind of uh, put our personal convictions into our play as well, and I, and I think that gives us a little bit of leverage, and I think that's definitely helped me become a better player is, is uh, just playing who I think is the best play, not who the field determines is the best play. Yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely leverage to be had just in conviction, especially if it's smart, well thought out conviction. And I think that that is probably one of the you know areas of the game that you and I are best at. And a lot of that comes from, I think, our different perspectives and coming together and just like, you know, hashing these things out, whether it be, yeah. you know, and privately the, it, and then bringing bro, it to the pod. In the, disc, just... in the Discord, it's like, we'll talk about our, our lineups or whatever. And there's been I've, pretty much every week, either Ben is convincing me to play a player or I'm convincing Ben to play a player in cash. Yep. And most of the time it fucking works out. That's the crazy part. Yeah. Most of the time that player ends up working out. Uh, and I think, I think it's important to hear, you know, differing viewpoints uh, so that's definitely beneficial and you know you should just be in the discord if you're not that that's yeah. the whole uh point of that yeah no i mean discord is is a huge thing um i think we have one of the sharpest ones out there joey is there anything else that we need to touch on there's obviously so much more to dfs it's such a layered complicated and nuanced game but i don't think we can sit here for three hours and talk about it we'll be doing tons of shows throughout the course of the season and i think that we will talk about these theories as they relate to specific slates multiple times per week every single week and Mm -hmm. this about closes it out i believe unless there's anything else that you want to add no i mean i think we covered pretty much the basics of DFS and how you should be playing and selecting contests and building lineups and obviously we're going to touch on this more on our YouTube channel with the videos that Ben and I are both going to be putting out each and every single week we're going to be doing live streams those are always popping those are our most viewed live streams are the Saturday night live stream where you know we just come on and answer a bunch of questions so make sure you're subscribed to the YouTube channel uh, we're almost at 400 subs, actually, only a couple away. So hopefully we hit that pretty soon. But nonetheless, I think it was a 
pretty informative show. I think that it's definitely a good refresher on DFS. I, I think that, you know, it was helpful for me to talk about it, get my mind in the right direction as the season approaches. We got eight days, eight days until the Thursday night football game. Uh, probably blow a couple lineups in showdown. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, season's about to start next week. A week from today will be our week one official breakdown. I'm excited. Yeah, I, I can't wait. This is my favorite time of year. One Sunday left, Joey. This is the last Sunday without a full slate of NFL games. Just sit back and think. It's it's about it's to beautiful. be a great stretch it's of beautiful. months. It really does. It really does, guys. And that is going to be it for episode 244 of the DFS Dose podcast. Make sure... You follow us on Twitter at Dose Media Net as well as our personal Twitters. I'm at Ben Hover. Joey is at Joey Carrion DFS. If you guys want to connect with us, stay up to date with what's going on with the network, join the inner circle. The link to join our free Discord channel is in the show notes to this podcast. To everybody listening out there, we appreciate you. We value you. Until next time, let's stay accountable and keep it authentic. Fox. 